Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. California reported 7,149 new confirmed coronavirus cases on Tuesday, shattering its single-day record. Santa Clara County reported the highest number of cases in the past two months, and experts say that some of the rise in cases can be attributed to an increase in testing, but they warn that testing alone is not responsible for the surge. Governor Gavin Newsom, who last week mandated Californians wear masks in public places, is also urging residents to use precautions like hand-washing and social distancing. And he warned that the state could reinstate more stringent restrictions. In this segment, we'll hear from experts about what is causing the spike and what we should do to prevent further spread. Joining us is KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg and UCSF Medical Center infectious disease specialist, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, and I welcome both of them to the program. And Leslie, let me begin with you. Good morning, first of all. Glad to have you. Good, good morning. I guess the place I'd like to begin is what these high numbers mean as best we can interpret them. I mean, not only cases surging in numbers, but hospitalizations are up 69% rise over the last couple of days. There is a kind of split here. It's a sort of tale of two parts of the state, uh, despite Santa Clara and the high numbers in Santa Clara and high numbers going up in Alameda and Contra Costa. The biggest numbers are, well, in Orange County and San Bernardino and Southern California, right? That is, yeah, I think, you know, I think what we're seeing is that Southern California is still seeing the worst of things. We've been watching that trend, you know, for about the last month, the Bay Area still continues to look pretty good. You know, though, as you pointed out, Santa Clara County on Tuesday recorded its highest number, you know, more than any single day in March or April at 121. On new cases. And so, you know, for some context, that 7,000 number is is quite a surge. Uh, we saw 3,000 on Sunday, and it wasn't that long ago that, um, you know, I was on your show reporting, you know, we're seeing about 1,200, 1,000 new cases a day. So 7,000 is quite a surge, and it is worrisome. Um, but, you know, as Newsom pointed out yesterday in his news conference, you know, only 8% of hospital beds are currently full about 30% of ICU beds are occupied. And that is rising. You know, we've seen a 16% increase in hospitalizations over the past week. But we still have, for example, like 11,000 unused ventilators. So we are seeing a rise. It is worrisome, but it does not, we're not overloading our healthcare system. And so I think we all went into shelter in place to protect our healthcare system, and our healthcare system is still doing okay right now. And things are steady here in San Francisco for the most part, but let's talk about what's behind all of this. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, sense of opening up, maybe contributing to a great deal more testing, um, and also uh, 
still looming in all this is the sense of uh, simply not enough social distancing, not enough wearing of masks, maybe even a kind of defiance on the part of some. Uh, there are many factors here, and yet if we can really pinpoint them, what do we come up with? Well, Sarah Cody uh, recently in her, mo in her press conference this week, and she is the public health officer in Santa Clara County, she pointed to three things. You know, more people are going outside. Uh, you know, it is summertime and, and the weather is good and things are reopening, so there's more reason to go outside. People are starting to socialize and public uh, health officers have given us an okay to, you know, socialize in bubbles and small pads or pods, etc. Um, and there is also the increase in testing. And unfortunately, though, we can't point to just the testing. You know, as you do more tests, obviously more people are going uh, to be positive, but the increase in the number, the percentage of people that are testing positive is also going up, which is which is worrisome. So, you know, I mean, I traveled this weekend for the first time. We went up to Tahoe and, and went camping, and I will say that it, it was worrisome. In some towns, it was as if we were not in a pandemic anymore. I, I came back to the Bay Area feeling uh, pretty lucky that we are in a place where people are really still taking this quite seriously and wearing their masks and social distancing. But I went through several small towns where it was, you know, life as normal in restaurants and in, in grocery stores, at gas stations. And, and we saw, you know, two weeks ago, or sorry, this last week, we saw the, you know, Los Angeles public health officials checked out 2,000 restaurants and found a thousand of those restaurants were not following the protocols that the state has mandated to keep us safe in these new businesses that are reopening. So it's a myriad of factors that we don't know, but it makes sense that we are seeing more cases given what's happening on the ground. And again, Leslie McClurg with us, science reporter for KQED. Dr. Peter Chin Hong is infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center. And Dr. Chin Hong, uh, what do you see in terms of uh, the increases here in infection rates, the big picture in California? Yeah, so thanks for having me on. I think, you know, Leslie spoke about the issues outside, but actually one of the big worries I have is what's going on inside closed doors. And we have some emerging reports from contact tracers that many of the epidemics or little surges in our area due to these graduation parties. And we know in other parts of the country, fraternity parties and pledge parties and these indoor activities, uh, you know, cross generations and lots of people are really contributing to mini spikes. We did know, we do know that in the tri-state area, one of the most famous uh, fanning out of cases was this big dinner party in Connecticut long ago. So I think it makes, you know, it gives us no surprise that these, you know, inside spikes are what's driving a lot of this. Uh, and of course, San Quentin and the epidemic there is the ultimate inside spike, if you think about it that way. Yeah, we talked about uh, the transfer of, uh prisoners from Chino to San Quentin uh, yesterday on the program, and uh, San Quentin was pretty clean until uh, those prisoners, many of them with uh, COVID-19, came in. I'm just wondering, though, Doctor, what your thoughts are about this uptick in cases uh, in the wake of, well, uh, reopening that's going to continue. San Francisco, for example, has moved up from mid-July to uh, June 29th for hair and, and, and racial salon, uh, nail salon, excuse me, for uh, museums, zoos, tab tattoo parlors, and so forth. Uh, is this really good timing at this point? That's always a difficult question. And I think Governor Newsom said it best himself when he's really weighing, you know, the risks and benefits at every stage. You know, you, on the one hand, we have lives potentially lost and 
increase in morbidity because people are afraid to go out and get vaccines. They're afraid to go out and get preventative care. There's a whole swath of people who are destitute because of the loss in wages, because of you know all the months of sheltering in place. So you have to balance that against the, the searches. And you know again, when will be the time when we sort of scale back um, on this is really going to be the million dollar question. I, th I think that, you know, like Leslie was saying, it's concerning for me, even though we don't have, we're not really close to ICU bed capacity or hospital bed capacity, but you know, that increase in test positivity rate and the increase in hospitalizations are creeping up. We do expect, and we always expected an increase in cases uh, with reopening, but it's really, you know, what's the calculus when we're gonna scale back based on getting to a place where, you know, there's a point of no return. We're talking about the rise in coronavirus infections in California. And what questions do you have about the rise in cases? If you'd like to join us, I invite you to do that now, our toll-free number. If you have questions, you can join us at 866-733-6786. Number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. And uh, actually, here's a specific question from Kevin. I'll go to you, Dr. Chin Hong. Uh, Kevin says, I have an Alameda County jury duty in July. It doesn't sound safe to me. Thoughts? Well, it depends on what the precautions that the courthouse is going to take to ensure safety of the jurors. And, you know, it's just like going to any facility or going to, you know, a store. If you go on the website and you feel convinced that they're doing certain things there, you know, cleaning the surfaces, everyone's wearing a mask, and, uh, you know, there's hand sanitizer that's easily accessible, and people are sitting far apart. You know, there are certain things that establishments can do to make things safe for customers and for, in your case, uh, being part of the ju jury, you know. Um, so if those things are in place, I, I wouldn't think it would be too risky. Of course, if you're somebody who has comorbidities or you're older, and maybe you have uh, cancer or some immunocompromising uh, condition, you can possibly make a case that uh, it may not be the best time, depending on what's going on in the community. And let me go back for a moment to you, Leslie McClurg. Uh, Governor Newsom has uh, talked about the necessity, possibly, at least as an alternative, of becoming more stringent uh, if, they, <clears throat> excuse me, if things continue to go up and actually also withholding local government. Uh, he's talked about the power of the purse here if they don't comply uh, with wearing masks and, and testing. So uh, this is a kind of tougher stance. In fact, let's hear a cut from Governor Newsom from his press conference yesterday. Let us be responsible at this moment to meet it head on with the new reality that we're seeing an increase in spread as more people mix, as the economy opens up, as more people are out and about. Wear a mask. And that emphasis on wear a mask, Leslie McClurg, seems to have, uh, well, some money behind it, at least in terms of the purse and the power of the purse. Yeah, $2.5 billion. Uh, Governor Newsom is threatening to withhold from the upcoming state budget from local governments if they fail to comply with, you know, state mandates like, you know, now our state mandate that you need to wear a mask, you know, at all times outdoors, or if you're going to be, you know, not able to socially distance, or sorry, indoors, need to wear it indoors. Um, you know, if they're not testing amply in these different counties and in a variety of other measures, you know, intended to slow the virus, if they're not following that, 
then he is threatening to to hold that money back. And that money is supposed to be used to help communities to pay for services related to the pandemic, you know, say for housing homeless folks or public health you know, measures or public safety. But it's all contingent. That money is contingent on counties following these orders. Uh, you know how well they'll be able to check whether or not counties are complying because it's up to the counties to certify that they're complying. You know, we will see. But he is trying to use this money to to push counties uh, to really follow these rules so that, you know, we stop the spread and we stop these spikes. Let me bring a caller on. Robin, join us. Good morning. You're on the air. Hello, Robin. Are you there? Well, Robin. I'm here. Uh, can you hear me? I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no, I can. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought we'd lost you. Please go ahead. <laughs> my question is, uh, and a lot of people don't talk about the fact that the virus needs us, right? If, if there's no new host, the virus dies. And the thing that I'm confused about is, why is it that we're, you know, when we started sheltering in place and we really didn't have anything open, there were far fewer cases, and now that there's a lot more cases, therefore it's a lot more dangerous to be out, we're opening up. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Let me hear from you on this, Dr. Chin Hong, please. Well, I think it's always, you know, I, I agree with you, Robin, that it makes me nervous. You know, I still don't feel comfortable, you know, even when the indoor spaces are open for restaurants to so go in there myself, I still don't feel comfortable traveling on a plane even though travel is in my blood and I, you know, tr I love to travel. And I think it really speaks to what you're saying. You know, there are enough noses and mouths around close to each other where the virus can just jump on a droplet to somebody else's nose or mouth. And, you know, I think Governor Newsom really spoke to that tension between, you know, the economy and, you know, people getting sick. And I think, you know, the other way to think about this, and I've thought a lot about this over the last few days, is really, you know, we've also changed a lot in the last few months since the beginning of shelter in place. So now we have a better idea how the virus loves to spread itself. For example, you know, it, it really is trying to get to your nose or mouth from another nose or mouth. And the role of surfaces and fomites is probably a little less um, risky. Um, so if I was stuck in a desert island, I'd probably keep a mask rather than, you know, if I had a choice between to get one thing. Um, and then the other issues are, of course, we've gotten better in treatment. So we have, you know, remdesivir now with emergency use authorization. We're better at ICU care of people who are sick. Um, we also have, you know, new information about steroids and the use of that. And there are lots of scientific stuff going on behind the scenes, as well as systems that are better prepared. So I feel like we're in a better place medically to take care of people if they're sick. Of course, we prefer them not to be sick. But again, it's that tension between, you know, people earning money, the economy, people going out even to get healthcare, you know, because we've had a real drop in people coming out to get vaccinations and routine primary care. And we wondered where those people were. So I think it's a really great point of tension you brought out. There's no great answer to that, except that I think as Governor Newsom said, we have to think about when we when would we toggle back given a certain threshold that we've reached with numbers and hospitalizations in California. And yeah, overall, I think, you know, because we don't do great, we can't close off states and we can't do disease screening at borders. We're not autonomous countries. We'll always be at the behest of the states and the communities around us that may not act or 
believe the same way or have the same COVID IQ or culture. Dr. Peter Chin Hung is infectious disease specialist at University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. And Dean is our next caller. Dean, join us. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Always nice to listen to your show. Uh, I just have a comment and I could take everything off air. Uh, we just had made a trip to Idaho, my family, my wife and two young kids. And, you know, we drove all the way there nonstop to get my mother-in-law's house. And, you know, we took our own food and we were doing everything right. We did, but everywhere we went and like in Reno, we had to stop. We actually did stop at, um, you know, the In-N-Out Burger and uh, everybody in working inside had a mask on. There wasn't one customer with a mask besides myself. The restaurant was packed. And in Idaho, it was like the whole thing wasn't even happening. Um, pretty much everywhere we went, no one was wearing a mask. No one was doing social distancing. Uh, and so that's just my comment. Uh, I'm glad we're taking – I'm glad the uh, – you know, I've never been a big Newsom fan, but I think he's done a good job. And I'm glad that we're taking it very seriously here because, you know, that's just my point. Well, I thank you for that point, Dean. Good to hear from you, and I appreciate the call. And I'm uh, going to read a comment from a listener named Linda who writes, Why does no one state that the masks must cover both the nose and mouth? Lots of people wear them over the mouth only. Wear a mask is such a poor statement. Cover your nose and mouth with a mask is much clearer. Thank you for that, Linda. And here's Daniel who writes, I teach high school in San Francisco. What advice do this morning's guests give regarding to what degree schools should reopen? Parents, teachers, and students need to make these decisions in the next couple weeks. Any light you can shine on this at this point, Dr. Chin Hong, help us with? Yeah, so I think all many people in health professions and healthcare believe that we will get a full spike. And a lot of that is driven not only by temperatures because it goes with the seasonality of respiratory viruses in fall and winter, but also with school reopenings. And again, it's really, you know, what are schools going to do to really help protect students and ultimately help protect the people at home because the students are going to go home and, you know, are they going to be elderly grandparents? So people with, you know, medical comorbidities at home, you know, these are all things to think about. So things that people have proposed, of course, with schools are, you know, whether or not people will, students would go in shifts you know, whether or not there'll be a hybrid of e-learning plus in-person instruction, uh, you know, even small things like, you know, spacing out recess and times when you go to the cafeteria. And, you know, of course, there's the whole sports practice and communal type activities that probably would have to scale back a lot. So I think schools still need to do a lot of work. We can learn from other parts of the world as well, um, but again, you know, it's again, you know, we have to think about educating our students as well, but how do we do it safely and, and when is too much, you know, when, when, do, when do we need to scale back again? So these are all great questions for, for which there's no great answer, except that if you have enough testing and contact tracing in the community and you notice an uptick again or a continued uptick, again, scaling back is something that each community will have to think about. Let me bring another caller on. That's Chris in San Mateo. Chris, welcome. You're on the air. Um, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay. So um, I, I'd like the experts maybe to talk a little bit about how the uncertainty around um, how lethal COVID is has diminished over time. And as I understand it, 
Um, we now know much more, and um, it seems like it's not nearly as bad as we thought in the beginning. Yeah, let's talk about mortality here. Uh, Leslie McClurg, uh, let's have you shed some light on this. Again, Leslie McClurg, science reporter for KQED Radio. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I would think that it has really significantly changed our understanding of how deadly this this disease is. I think we are definitely still learning about COVID-19. And we you know, what we do know from the data is that those folks who have underlying conditions, you know, diabetes, heart disease, you know, something that makes them immunocompromised are more vulnerable to, to the virus. Um, you know, the, the mortality rate is is a moving target. And we've seen that from from the beginning. Um, and it still is continues to be a moving target. You know, it is as we test more, we get a, a slightly more accurate number. But the mortality rate is still, you know, it's not as high as we thought in the in the very beginning. But but it is still significant and significantly higher than say like you know the flu virus. So I wouldn't say that I feel like it is significantly less deadly than we thought. It is still a dangerous disease, and people are still dying at numbers you know much higher than than we would like. Are we also, Leslie, seeing uh, here in California this rise in cases among young people? There's certainly been a lot of talk about that. Yeah, we are seeing, you know, more young people. I mean, I think it depends on how young you're talking. So we're still fortunately not seeing a lot of, uh, you know, positive cases and or really sick folks in super young populations. So people, you know, under the, you know, like little kids are seem for some reason to be more resilient to COVID. Um, as they get older, as people in general get older, they seem to be more vulnerable. Uh, we see a higher case rate in you know teens and twenties, and it goes up from there. You know, and obviously the worst numbers we're seeing are in folks over seventy and over eighty. So we are seeing more positive cases in young people. Fortunately, we are still not seeing high hospitalization numbers, although it can happen. I mean, I think that's the thing that we, I'm learning at least about the coronavirus is that there is. It can happen is, is something I find myself saying fairly often in that there are not many black and whites about this particular virus. Well, there is also an element here, and I'm going to go to you on this again, Dr. Chin Hong, uh, that really has been out of the mainstream news uh, in the big cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, and that is that the rural areas in California, the rural counties continue to be ravaged by coronavirus. and. Uh, these are areas that, well, are critical to the nation's food supply. Uh, I'm wondering why this doesn't get more concern or more notice, but uh, to some extent, uh, this is something that's really part of the whole picture. It certainly is part of the whole picture. Um, the rural areas are really a heterogeneous patchwork of risk when you think about COVID. I mean, I think a lot of the outbreaks, say, in the last two to three weeks that we've seen were related to meatpacking, you know, factories or plants in rural areas, for example, Hanford, and the closest one perhaps was in Fresno area in, in Kings County. And of course, there are a lot of essential workers out there in the fields in, in many parts of the rural areas. I think rural communities get the short shaft. They don't get uh, the attention as much uh, potentially in the media. And there is a lot of uh, COVID out there and, and people may not feel themselves as as uh, vulnerable, uh, you know, as as Dean, one of the callers, pointed out on his road trip to Idaho, and he stopped off in some of these areas, and nobody's wearing a mask in in these communities. You know, when I've traveled through some areas north, I've also noticed uh, some of the same sort of you know people not really feeling personally at risk and not taking uh, precautions. So I'm wondering also if the public health messaging isn't also going 
to the rural communities in the same way that they're going to cities? Probably um, there's been more emphasis on the cities, I think. Uh, that's what concerns me and why I raised the question with you. Uh, a number of questions raised by listeners here, though. Uh, Kathy wants to know, and I'll go to you on this again, uh, Peter Chin Hong. Uh, how common is it for a person over 60 to be a non-symptomatic carrier? So I think uh, asymptomatic carriers or people with very mild symptoms, uh, you know, it, we think it from the epidemiology, it peaks in the early adulthood, uh, late teens, sort of like, um, you know, that spring break USA crowd. That's why the, these images of people on beaches were so scary to many of us uh, because people didn't feel sick. They didn't feel like they were doing anything irresponsible. But as we know, the nature of the beast in COVID-19 and the why it's so scary is that people can transmit virus without even feeling sick. And that's why you can't look at someone and say whether or not they're ill or not. And, and again, plugging for the masks. That's the reason why we should all wear masks, uh, uh, particularly in, in indoor settings or when you're close to other noses and mouths. You know, coming back to the older generation with uh, asymptomatic carriers, uh, in general, the, the asymptomatic uh, uh, carriers peak in that early adulthood, but continues at all age groups. It's just that it's more prominent in the late adolescent, early adulthood uh, age groups. But Once again, Dr. Peter Chin Hong is infectious disease specialist at the UCSF Medical Center. And Kim is our next caller. Kim, thank you for waiting. Join us. You're on the air. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking my call. I am a sign language interpreter, and with some of the counties reopening, we've been getting requests to interpret doctor's appointments. Um, as you know, or maybe, that uh, facial expressions are very important to the deaf community to infer tone. And so I was wondering, is a face shield, which would be clear, and that way the deaf person could see my face, is that equivalent to a mask, or is it not? Well, we're back to face shields here. Uh, Dr. Chin Hong, I'm going to go to you. I love face shields. They're so comfortable. They have a little piece of foam at your forehead, and you can wear them for long periods of time. I've worn them a lot in the hospital. And I, they are effective. If you really think about the biology of the disease, you're just pre preventing that uh, virus traveling on somebody's droplet coming from a nose or mouth to your nose or mouth. So if you wear a face shield, it just blocks it physically. Uh, and the other good thing about the face shield is that it's eco-friendly. You can sort of wipe it down after and reuse them. So I think, you know, in the hospital setting, we've used them a lot. We have reusable face shields. We have poppers. Um, and they just become an adjunct. And I think particularly, as Kim pointed out, for sign language. And we also brought this up when people are, you know, in, in sort of emotionally charged areas where they need to show facial expressions that face shields are a good alternative to to masks if people need uh, want to wear them so that you can see and enjoy each other's expressions. Well, here's Chris who brings up the whole question of herd immunity. He says, given we don't have a vaccine and that we need to reach a high infection rate to achieve herd immunity, should we allow the rate of infection to rise? We would have to keep the rate from overwhelming the medical system or from getting away from us. And this gets into the whole question, of course, about Sweden and what they've decided to do. Can I get some quick thoughts uh, from you, Dr. Chen Hong, on this? Uh, that's a great point. There is no way, like 0% chance, and we'll ever get to the herd immunity of 70% from natural infection. Um, you know, even in New York, where they, they've had such an amazing surge uh, decimating their healthcare and economic systems, they never really reached close to 70%, probably like in the 30% range if you're 
being the most optimistic. And, and again, you pointed out the case of Sweden where they tried to use the theory that maybe we should just get everyone naturally infected and then we'll reach up to that herd immunity uh, level, magic number of 70%. But it, they never got there. In fact, they just ended up having the most deaths in Scandinavia. We will have to leave it there. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, appreciate your being with us. Thank you for being with us on this Hour of Forum. And again, Dr. Peter Chin Hong is infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center. And Leslie McClurg, always good to have you aboard. Thank you so much, and thank you for your work. Thank you. Leslie McClurg is science reporter for KQED Radio, and we have another Hour of Forum up ahead here on KQED Radio. Stay tuned for that. It's next. Uh, we're going to talk about pride uh, and pride being identified to a much greater extent with some of the things that are going on with respect to protests for social justice. That's next. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.